Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Emily's List, Emerge, She Should Run, Ignite, What Will It Take? These organizations are taking the lead in getting women to run and win political office. In the last few months, many of them have been besieged with inquiries from women asking how to make it happen. Does this reflect a momentary interest or significant long-term change? We talk politics with women working hard to make 2018 the year of the elected woman. Later in the show, has America's huge obsession with celebrities finally gotten out of control? How and why do most of us share this preoccupation with the famous? The things that we do in our life to escape, if we go to movies or watch TV shows or go to ball games or listen to albums, the people in those that sort of star in these things that we escape from are the celebrities. And we like to see them outside of the realm that we're used to seeing them and figure out the things that are just like us. We examine the stars in our eyes with author Julie Clam and Professor Rachel Rubin. But first, joining me in the studio, Ryan Olson, Executive Director of Emerge Massachusetts, a training program for Democratic women to hone their skills in order to win political races. Hello, Ryan. Hello there. Victoria Budson, founder and executive director of the Women in Public Policy Program at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm so glad to have you. And Anissa Asaya B. George, who was elected Boston City Councilor at Large in November 2015. She is also a graduate of the Emerge Program. Hello, Anissa. Hello. All right. This is a great conversation I've been looking forward to because almost since the election, actually you could say before the last presidential election, I just started hearing and seeing and all these women talking about running for office. Some of that obviously was inspired by Hillary Clinton's run and uh, after the election, some of it was inspired by Donald Trump's win. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. So I want to just set the table, Ryan, starting with you about where we are in terms of women's interest in running. For sure. And we saw the same thing at Emerge. We have a six-month intensive training program, and we were in the middle of our application season when the election happened. We got more started and completed applications in the four days after the election than the entire four months prior to the election. The interest doubled. We went from 57 women starting their applications in 2015 to 115 in 2016. And what we ended up having to do is double our training program, offer two six-month training programs to meet the demand of women who were stepping up and saying, you know, if it's not Hillary, it's got to be me. I'm going to be running for office this year. Wow. Victoria, would you respond to that too? I think what we have now seen really across the United States and certainly here in Massachusetts is the perception that 
politics will require a specific set of knowledge and expertise has really shifted to people saying, why not me? Mm-hmm. And traditionally, before women would consider running for office, they would ask themselves a series of questions, which would come off such as, am I good enough? Do I know enough? Will people vote for me? What will happen to me if I don't win? And those are all very reasonable questions, but they're really the wrong questions. And the right question is, what will be lost for my not having served? And I think that this election in particular put such a fine point on what was at stake that women are really reframing and saying, what is the contribution I can make? And now I think what we see, as Ryan so adeptly shared with the increase, is women are saying, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to get out there and run. And they're seeking training and support. And we have lots of good examples of women who are jumping in. They're getting elected and they're making real change for their community. Well, we have one good example right here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anissa Asaivi George, what finally got you to say, you know, it's me. I'm going to run. So a few things got me to run. And uh, one point I'd love to make, especially about the Emerge program, is I ran in 2013 and lost. And then I took the Emerge Boot Camp, ran in 2015, and won. And I'd say so much of the credit of my win goes to the training that I had through the Emerge Boot Camp um, in early 2015. What made the difference? Well, I think a few things made the, di- the difference particular to the Emerge program. One is the confidence. And I think mm. we have as women the skills that we need in order to compete on the political stage and to run and win office. But we often lack the confidence that we can do it. And so when you participate in a program like Emerge, it really sort of gives you that backup. Mm-hmm. And it's the backup of your classmates. And in my classmates in particular, in my group, we've remained really close and connected. But it's the backup of that organization that really makes you feel um, that you can do this. And you've got this, you know, sisterhood. And when we're talking about women, we talk about the sisterhood behind you and supporting you through. And I'd say to Victoria's point, oftentimes women are asked to wait and they're asked to wait and they're given the excuses by people that are asking them to wait. It's it's not your time. Your kids are too young. You haven't started your family yet. You know, all of these things, these excuses that are given to you. And I think as women, we too quickly say, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should wait. It's not my time. And and we've seen that change over the course of the last eight, 10 months or whatever it's been uh, where women are saying, no, it's not. Stop telling me to wait. It's my turn to run. So. Let me pick up on what you just said, Anissa, because the statistic that I've often heard is it takes seven times to get a woman to run. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the flip side of what you're saying, people telling you, you're, you, I'm ready to go, and other people are telling you, don't, 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 for all these reasons. But I keep hearing this stat that people had to keep going back to women and say, come on, come on, and maybe around the seventh time, then a response. I'd like all of you to respond to that. Victoria, I'll start with you. Well, what's really interesting is... Often women, it takes more to recruit. Men often need no recruitment at all. They wake up in the morning and they say, I think I should be president or I think I should run for city council. And, you know, I've lived here two months and I'm ready to go or I don't even live here. And I think I should run. We have lots of examples of that, actually, even here in Massachusetts. And for women, they like it all lined up. Mm -hmm. And politics, by definition, is messy. But it's not just, as Anissa talked about, which is so true, this confidence piece. It's also that women have really high social backlash. So if women don't get something right or 
don't get elected, they aren't often taken care of as well as their male counterparts. There's not that job waiting for them. The Old Boys Network doesn't rally around women, and women have done a great job at figuring that out better, of having an old girls network, and of understanding that running is part of the process of being engaged politically. As you so beautifully stated earlier, Anissa, you ran, didn't win. You built your network, you built your skills, you ran again, and now you're serving. Mm -hmm. And that's what it takes. It takes not just running and winning, but saying, I'm in this for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And additionally, women need to understand why they need to run. And what we know is that even good, well-meaning people find it really hard to get policy right Mm. if it's not a life they've lived. For example, with the Affordable Care Act, in the first draft, neither mammograms nor pap smears were covered. And it took women on both sides of the aisle to, like, blow the whistle and say, everybody out of the pool, this isn't acceptable. And even if you weren't invested in women, what it would cost to miss those screenings and to be treating as a nation late-stage cancers instead of early stage Mm -hmm. would be significantly different budgetarily. So we're still at a place here in Massachusetts and in the U.S. where we need descriptive representation. We need people who've walked the walk and lived the life to get the policy right. That's my guest, Victoria Butson. She's founder and executive director of the Women in Public Policy Program at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Ryan, what comes to mind, what Victoria just said about women not being taken care of if they should lose, Jane Swift here in Massachusetts. Let's look inward at Massachusetts. And, you know, this is not somebody that I was, you know, particularly thought, ooh, ha, ha, I'm so glad she's there. But I was glad she was there as a woman making her way. And after she sucked it up and stepped aside for... Mitt Romney, I didn't see. I Then I got mad on her behalf. Like, wait a minute. She's supposed to get something. She sat in that chair. She took that heat. What's, what's she supposed to get? That doesn't happen. So I just wanted to put that on the table, that I've seen it up close here in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. And if people were struggling, trying to think, well, how does that happen? That's what it looks like. So Ryan, again, about uh, the seven times asking women, you respond to that. Of course. Mm-hmm. Recruitment is a really big piece of the work that we do. They've done studies and that when women and men run for office, they win at the same rates. It's not that women are just losing elections over and over. And that's why we are still at 25 percent for the past 20 some years at the Massachusetts State House. It's the fact that we don't have women running at the same rates as men. And it is this double edged sword. One, women need more work to be recruited. They need to be asked at seven times. They need to be encouraged. They want to have a bit of support and have all the ducks in the row. And unfortunately, to speak to what Anissa said, they're less likely to be recruited. When we talk about mm-hmm. party leaders or gatekeepers, the first people they think of are those who are already in the state house, or those who are already elected to the city council, or people who are predominantly men already in this old boys network. And emerge, we're really trying to change that, right? Starting to get women to run at all levels of office, city council, state rep, um, school committee, and also trying to encourage women to find other careers in the political sphere as well, so that when people are starting to think through the seat opens, who shall we recruit? The chief of staff is a woman. The campaign manager could be a woman. There's a broad base of a really strong bench to recruit these women to run for political office. That's my guest, Ryan Olson. She's executive director of Emerge Massachusetts, a training program for Democratic women to hone their skills to win political races. I want to note in a survey by Politico, the American University, and Loyola Marymount University, looking at just women and what they call the Trump effect, Mm -hmm. you know, which 
a lot of people have pointed to as inspiring many women, some of the women that you've just discussed that called you up right mm-hmm. afterwards and, and, and jumped in, was interesting as they drilled down to figure out, well, what will women get excited about or what makes women feel comfortable and qualified to run, because we're going to get back to that word, is that women who would run for school boards, but they were a little bit more reluctant about other offices. They were very comfortable on school board, felt like I am qualified for that because I volunteered in my community, whatever. But that was interesting to me. Have you seen that as you talk to women before I get over here to Anissa and let her answer? For sure. (laughs) And we try to Not that there's anything wrong with serving on school committee or school board, right? It's really important that we have strong female representation and really diverse points around school board and school committee. But to prevent women from thinking, okay, this is the only thing I'm qualified for, we start the Emerge Train by asking women, what would be your lifetime achievement award? If you could leave this world achieving one thing, what would it be? Great. Now, how can we talk about how we build a pathway for you to get to a political office where you could make that achievement, where you could have that impact, where you could serve your community in this way? So if it's starting out at school committee and then running for U.S. Senate, great. But so often we see men jumping into these higher level offices, right, running for Congress as their first seat, running for state Senate as their first seat, where women are trying to work their way up through the ladder. They don't suffer from feeling like they have to be qualified. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in the meantime, they lose out on these opportunities. So it's one part me and women where they're at. Some women really do want to serve on the school committee and support their kids. That's awesome. But also make it clear to them that there's a whole bunch of other offices that are available and could be just as achievable for them and the qualifications they already have. So jump in, Anissa, because you're the living embodiment of, of somebody who's been around and figured out how to do this. Well, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've done my best to figure out how, how to get this done. And I think that the qualification conversation is always the most fascinating to me. And I think about when I ran both in 2013 and 2015, what were the messages that I shared with voters about my qualifications. And I often referred to three of them. I was a mom, I was a teacher, and I'm a small business owner. And folks really responded to that. And men and women alike across the city of Boston thought, well, no, she's selling herself as a mom. I really owned being a woman because I think it's it's really important to have women in elected office, but also At that point in time, there weren't moms on Mm -hmm. the city council and to just sort of embrace it fully as my qualification and said to folks, you know, anyone at the table right now who's making these decisions, I am just as qualified and can make just as good of decisions, if not better decisions, when it comes to our families, our city as a whole, our playgrounds, our schools, whatever it is. I deserve a seat at the table. And the, and the same for being a teacher. And, you know, teaching is a predominantly female industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true, certainly, in the city as well. And talked about my experiences as a teacher and owned, just owned it outright. And I think oftentimes women want to shy away from owning that feminine personality. And in fact, my political, my campaign signs are hot pink. And <laughs> I have a small business, and that was our color. And so I said, oh, why not? Let's use it in the political, in in my signs. And I got some pushback from women Mm. that said, oh, I don't know about the pink. It maybe diminishes you. And then we come to our women's rally this year, and it's all about the hot pink. (laughs) And so I was ahead of my time. Mm -hmm. But it was about owning who I was and what I represent and really being a woman. And that's what men do. Mm. Men just own it regardless of whether or not 
they should own it. And it goes back to that qualification piece. And, and we as women tend to wait and say, well, I need my master's degree mm-hmm. or I need to do this in business or I need to do this. Or oh, I should you have know, had three other offices before I try to do whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's all about waiting your turn. And too often I hear that conversation is, no, you have to wait your turn. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Ryan Olson, Executive Director of Emerge Massachusetts, Victoria Budson, Founder and Executive Director of the Women and Public Policy Program at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and Boston City Councilor at Large, Anissa Asaya B. George, you just heard her. We're discussing the challenges women face when running for public office and how programs, both locally and nationwide, are assisting women who want a seat at the political table. I'd like to turn to Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Victoria, I think you mentioned that, it's, or maybe you did, Ryan, but whatever, 25% of our legislative offices are held by women, and we're in 2017. And as I look back at the list provided by the Center for Women in Politics, I think, it didn't, it hasn't changed much over the last 10 years or so. Last 20 and, years. Yeah, the last, last 20 years or so. And then we're horrible on governor, obviously. We've never done that. And we're not so hot on mayor. <laughs> so I'd love you to just speak to you know, how you see Massachusetts within the spectrum of what's happening around the country and what's happening here behind, about the same. What, what do you, how do you see it, Victoria? Well, I just wanted to share one thought, and I'm sure Ryan will have lots to say, being very focused on Massachusetts. What's so unusual is do note it's not just that we have a small number, right? We've never gone above 26 percent ever. It's that we have the most highly educated women in the United States, hmm. the largest number of college and graduate degrees held by women are here. So we both have an incredibly talented, highly educated, engaged workforce and educational attainment benchmark, and yet haven't translated all of that political capital, all of that intellectual good into then harnessing that for our state. So we're both low. You know, we kind of hover in the middle for what the country does. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the resources we have, we're way up high. So the gap in many ways is even bigger than it would appear. Hmm. Ryan. That's a really good point, Victoria. And it's something that Massachusetts struggles with. Since we do have a very strong Democratic Party, I think in a way, as even though Emerge works to train Democratic women, having it be a single party helps keep it an old boys network in a way. It allows people to more clearly choose their successors. There's less competitive primaries, and that's a huge part of it. Massachusetts has one of the least competitive primaries of any other state in the country. So this means there's fewer races as a whole, which means there's less of a chance for more diverse candidates to run against the incumbents and be successful. So that's one challenge we face. However, I do think there is a bit of hope. We are at 26%, which is the highest we've ever been. We are currently at our high watermark. And we're starting to see real change in the Boston City Council Mm. over the past few years. In 2008 or 2010, I believe, Ayanna Presley was the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council. And since we've gotten... Citywide. Citywide, Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Since then, we have four Mm -hmm. women of color serving on the Boston City Council. And that's a huge, huge growth. And if elections go well this year, there is a slight possibility that half the Boston City Council is woman when we swear them in in 2018. So we are starting to see progress in the city of Boston, and we're starting to see more women run in general. 
This year alone, Emerge Massachusetts has 58 of our alumna on the ballot for city council, mayor, state senate, across the Commonwealth. So what's really promising for me is that we aren't only seeing more women being trained, we're seeing more women run and running more competitive elections. So that's a bigger pool in the end. Exactly, Mm -hmm. right. So how do you look and see it from your perch as being one of those women that we're talking about, Anissa? So I've got so much to say about this. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I spoke before a small graduation for Boston Dane Evening Academy, and it was a class of 11 students proceeding with their high school diploma in a slightly different way. And one female student, Joanna, who has a love of politics, loves government, so I was so happy to speak to her and speak to her class. But I spoke a lot very much directly to her, but spoke about in the city council's 100-year history, in the Boston City Council's 100 years, we've only had 13 women serve. And four of them are on the council right now. Mm. So it's really a very, it's a, it's a depressing backlook, as the case might be, and hopefully a more positive future outlook for the Boston City Council. And I spoke to her directly and said, you've got to run. You've got, like, we, we are laying the foundation for you. And it's great to say that we're the first this or we're the first that when it comes to women running for office. We have to make room for the second the third Mm. and the fourth. And we have to make sure by the time that Joanna is ready to run for office, which I hope is sooner rather than later, that she's not the 14th or the 15th, that we've got more of a history there for her to to work from. The other uh, piece with the 25% of our legislative body being women, we're also in Massachusetts not seeing women in executive director or CEO Mm -hmm. positions in business or lead positions in the medical field. If we could say, well, women aren't running because they're running business, then that would be something that we could promote. But we're not seeing that exchange on the other end. So we've got so much work to do. And when Victoria talks about sort of the, the knowledge that we have in this state when it comes to women and their academic success and their, you know, their achievement on sort of the lower levels or in the middle levels of business, we need to see it in the higher levels. And when we have that full reflection in society then we can say that we've arrived and we've got so much more work to do. A couple of interesting things. The uh, Women's March Movement Group are reconfiguring themselves to go into the direction of pushing women to run for office. One thing I should note, even though right now the preponderance of folks who are seeming to go into some of these groups to learn and to be trained are Democratic women, uh, both parties Uh, are showing that lots of women Mm -hmm. are looking into and running. So I wanted to make sure I put that on the table. So let's talk about sexism and misogyny, which was a big part of the conversation, and certainly in some circles during the presidential election. And as we read, as I read through a number of the reports, women who said, it's hard enough just trying to go through the process. I just don't want to deal with that. I don't Mm want to deal with that more than I have to in the rest of my life. Respond to that. Let me start with you, Anissa. It's a challenging piece when facing sexism in particular to turn a blind eye to it and stay focused on the work because it becomes a distraction when you're trying to get your work done, that you're constantly reminded who you are and of your gender and and how you are often treated as a second class of a body, whether it's a city council or a state legislature or a boardroom. And that's incredibly difficult, although I just said a few moments ago that I really own being a woman and I talk Mm -hmm. about being a woman. I talk about being a a mom and how that really has impacted the way that I govern and what I'd say is a very positive way. So it's, you know, it's it's this constant push and pull and, and finding that balance and also realizing where you 
work to tune it out and then where you address it head on. And we talk about, you know, incidences of bad behavior by men in government. Oftentimes as a female elected official, I'm asked, well, what do you think about that? Mm. And I'm like, I want to get to my work. Mm. Like, and this becomes, it becomes a, a whole lot of noise that there is times where it's appropriate to respond, but other times it just becomes the distraction. I imagine you must be training people to deal with this, Ryan, because I'm recalling Karen Polito on her last run before she became lieutenant uh, governor. And I don't remember the incident, but the first time she responded sort of very mildly and the second time she would not respond. Mm. And I thought that was a calculated move on her part that I'm just not going to deal with this publicly because I just can't afford to have this, you know, be something that's that is framing my whole run. So she just refused to deal with it. So how do you train people to deal with the sexism and misogyny that's out there? Uh, unfortunately, it's not something we can stick in a two-hour training and then we yeah. just wash <laughs> our hands and we solve it. But it is something that is threaded throughout our training program. And it comes up in lots of different ways, too, Right. So if you're walking in a parade or knocking on doors, do you wear heels or do you wear flats or do you wear sneakers? And then how do you respond to people talking about what shoes you're wearing as though that's even important? Mm -hmm. We talk about when you're creating your stump speech, right? How much do you talk about your personal experience versus your professional experience? We talk about spouses on the campaign trail Mm -hmm. or partners on the campaign trail, right? How visible do you want them to be or not want them to be? And then how do you deal with the blowback if you have kids or if you don't have kids. So it's something we're constantly talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think just having that support network of way you're in a room with, you know, 10 to 24 other women who are going through the same thing, the same struggles, the same issues that you are. So we give the women a chance to talk through it, come up with solutions, figure out what works best for them in their own campaigns and their own political strategies. But I have a response. Right. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and I think it's worth saying we talk about Emerge, we aren't going to solve sexism all at once, <laughs> but the very least we can make it less lonely. <laughs> A lot of times women will have an opponent say something inappropriate to them or dismiss them. And although they may not be able to confront their opponent at the moment because of the dynamics of their race, at the very least they can go to their Emerge sisters and be able to share their stories, share their grievances, and build each other back up after something like that happens. You know, from a holistic viewpoint, Victoria, it would seem to me that that, like, if the woman then manages to get elected, then it can impact you if you're trying to figure out, do I say something about the lack of mammograms or not because I don't feel like dealing with this. So, you know, speak to that if you would. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that happens is women are always trying to figure out how much do I address or not address. Obviously, different women have different perspectives, and what your race looks like is going to frame how you manage that. One key piece is you want to have external validators and important people outside of the candidate Mm -hmm. address it. So just as Councilwoman Anissa had talked about, she doesn't want to waste her airtime And the number of print words she has focused on having to deal with what somebody foolishly let fly out of their mouth. Note, they didn't keep it in a thought bubble. They went thump and let that hit the table. But she still has to do the business of her constituents. But if there can be other people who know, aha, this just took place, I'm going to get right in the media and get that taken care of so that we leave our women candidates not having to hold the mantle up of taking care of what inappropriate thing was said. And when women are watching this and saying, do I want to run or not, and they're going through the exercises, you talked about, you know, do I want to put up with that? What I like to remind women is when you're watching 
President Trump or at the time candidate Trump and Secretary of State or candidate Clinton, you're watching Olympic level politics. Mm. And none of us would want to get into a pool and try to beat Michael Phelps when we haven't trained. And trained a lot. Correct. (laughs) But what we can do is know that women can build that muscle over time. So when you're watching Olympic level politics, you can say, I'm not ready to be in the Olympics today, but I will ensure that I am ready to be there ahead. And as women, we all know from our own experiences across every culture, no matter what language you speak or where you live in this state or this nation or this world, that women will be talked about. And you get to choose. You can have a smaller life and you'll be talked about in your home. You can have a slightly larger life, and you're going to be talked about in your neighborhood. A larger life than that in your city, in your state or province. But you choose your level. You cannot inoculate yourself from people speaking about you in ways that you would and would not choose. But women have to now decide for themselves, what is that contribution? What is that dream? What will they achieve? And sometimes women will say to me, did you see what happened to Hillary? And I would say, tell me, what happened to her? And eventually they say, well, you know, she was secretary of state. I'm like, that seems pretty good. <laughs> and she broke, you know, she broke two glass ceilings. She didn't make it to the third, but the first woman ever elected by a major party. And again, she was the first woman to redefine what the presidential election would be. She just didn't break three. We want her to be Moses and Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're right. right? Yeah. And Moses took us through the desert, but it was Joshua of the next generation. And I admire and respect my colleagues like Ryan, who was helping to train those Joshuas, and Councilwoman, who may be that Joshua, <laughs> who's going to take us to the next level. But women are, you know, we're always expected to do too many things at once. And women also hold themselves accountable in that cult of perfection to do them all really well. You know, women don't have to be perfect, but they need to be in that game. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Ryan Olson, Victoria Budson, you just heard her, and Anissa Asaya B. George. And we're talking about women in politics and the increased interest in women running for public office since the presidential election of 2016. All right, so Ignite, that's an organization focused on young women Uh running for office. And I bring that up because it appears, according to some of these recent surveys, that they have not accepted, but they understand sexism in a different way than some of the older women have. I mean, they were quite shocked, I think, by the level of it in the presidential campaign. But nevertheless, they are not, here's an important point, seem to be spending a lot of time about their qualifications. They're like, hey, I'm qualified, not talking about that. So it's really interesting to me to see them. Another little fun fact that came up in one of these reports is that a lot of the women who tend to go into politics later were in sports earlier. So I don't know if any of you have any responses to that, but I want to talk about the generational differences in uh, some of the women uh, choosing to run for office or think about running for office. Anissa, are you, you've talked about one young woman who's not yet ready, but, but there seems to be a different take from younger women. Well, I want to uh, just reference the sports analogy mm-hmm. with women in uh, politics. I was somewhat of an athlete. And I think go. that competitive spirit, <laughs> both in whatever sport you play, but then also that competitiveness that you eventually have to face with your male counterparts 
and sort of who's the real athlete conversation absolutely translates in, into politics. And without a doubt, that competitive spirit comes out during election time. And I say from post-Labor Day to Election Day is those of us that are fascinated with politics, this is our Super Bowl. Like this is playoffs and we are in it with both feet. And you don't get into politics without really enjoying uh, the campaigning piece. But And I'd love to just backtrack very quickly to some of what Victoria said. I think it's really important to note when we think about Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, what I as a female candidate and now as an elected sort of get from all of that is regardless of what role you're seeking, what office you're seeking, the criticism for women on their appearance, mm-hmm. on their dress, on their hairstyle, on their makeup or lack of makeup, bare shoulders or not bare shoulders, flip-flops or high heels, I like flip-flops, that we get that, you know, 10 times more than men do. And I'd also say down to how we position our family in a photo for any of our campaign literature, where if there's a husband, I have, my husband is in many of my pictures, where he's positioned according to me. And does do I look wow. taller? Do I look in charge? And these are conversations that we as female candidates have to have because there is a different lens on our campaigns where men don't. And men don't often include their families in their campaign literature. And females have to make that decision oftentimes or push to make that decision. Do you include them or don't you include them? And what's great about programs like Ignite Ignite, and when you're talking about younger women getting interested in politics, they're fearless. And and we all think back to when we first, you know, either got entered college or graduated from college. There is that fearlessness at that younger age that as an older candidate, first-time candidate, I had a lot more fear. And I had a lot more fear because, you know, because I've sort of been through some of the politics uh, that we look at or we face in the city of Boston. Ryan? Yeah, I think it's really important that we continue to build this new girls network and Emerge is a part of that. Ignite is a part of that. Emily's List is part of it. There's a lot of organizations that are doing a great job at getting this earlier generation of women involved and engaged organizations that can teach them and provide the data and statistics so they are informed and then programs that can train them and then other programs that endorse them and support them once they're running. Um, And I think like all of these programs are necessary components for us to break all the smaller glass ceilings around the Commonwealth and across the country when it comes to women's representation. But yeah, starting when women are young, having really great role models, we have a saying, you can't be it if you don't see it. Mm. So starting to make sure that these young girls start to see more and more women running for office, winning, losing, and then running again, um, I think is going to be really crucial for us to take the next step. Victoria? You know, Ryan talked about it's hard to be it if you can't see it. And when we're talking about programs that focus on younger women, our campaign training program for people within Harvard, from Harvard Square to the Oval Office, the majority of our students are non-white who are in the program. And I think it's really important we also talk about intersectionality. Mm. And when we look at the political leadership we will need as a nation, and certainly across the globe as well, But by 2040, every major city in the United States will be majority-minority. It's predicted that the largest purchasing power in the United States will be Latina women. And we have to ensure that we are building not just the training programs for the candidates, but really as a nation understanding what our resources are and not missing our human capital talent. When we talk about women, we're an incredibly multifaceted, ever-diverse group. And the United States, as you know, most of us know, 
is literally so many different cultures and languages and belief systems. And if we're going to truly be a united states, that's got to be reflected in our political representation. If we drew a pie chart and looked at the number of women who've ever served in Congress, it's about two and a half percent. So it's this very thin slice. And if you then said, who are just the women of color who've served, it would be the faintest of lines. And you could say, well, I'm interested in that. I'm not interested in that. But make no mistake about it. If we do not have women who've lived different experiences in the U.S. making our policy, we won't get it right. Mm -hmm. And not getting it right has major consequences. And I'll just very quickly say the largest group of poor people in the United States is elderly white women. And they're poor and they didn't know they were going to be poor during their working years Mm -hmm. because when Social Security was built and everyone meant to do a non-gendered policy, but they forgot that women live longer, that at some point they may be unpartnered, that they take more time off to care for loved ones, both older and younger and everything in between, that their jobs are less pensionable. And all of that combined to mean that this policy that they thought would be neutral had this incredible effect. Here in the U.S., if we're going to get it right, we need to tap all of our talent, and we need to make sure that we're starting that right now. Victoria, let me just pick up from what you just said about the women of color. I'm aware of um, some organizations, Latino and African-American, pushing women to run. And I don't know if you if you all have seen that, if each of you have seen it in your various arenas. And I wonder about what I would call the Kamala effect. Kamala Harris in, in the Senate doing what I thought she would do and predicted she would do, but wondering if that's just my, in my mind and it's not really you know, registering anywhere with anybody. So I'll get you to start um, answering that question of Victoria. I think any political party that does not understand that they're going to need to recruit broad, diverse by region, ethnicity, and capacity is absolutely going to miss the boat. I think it's incredibly important, as Victoria was saying, we're ultimately trying to make sure that the decision-making tables of power represent the people they're making decisions for. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have diverse and talented candidates, women of color, Latinas, um, black women, in our ranks and making sure that we're training them at even equal or even higher than the race that we're training white women. Is there a Kamala effect that you can register now? Unfortunately, not that I've been able to see so far. A lot of the activism we've seen after the election has been a lot of white women on Facebook, the pantsuits groups, the Action Together Massachusetts groups, which are wonderful and great but are primarily white. We didn't necessarily see the intersectionality and diversity at the Women's March that I think a lot of organizations were hoping for. So I think we need to be a lot more aware and intentional um, when we're building this movement. I would add that I worry about us just sort of checking the box. Do we have our Mm -hmm. Mm African-American woman? Do we have our Asian woman? Do we have our Arab? Do we have our uh, Latina? And then we move on, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to building a real deepness and richness in all of those ethnic and racial groups across the board. So real quick answer, is this a momentary change in terms of women's interest in running or a significant change? Significant and long-term. I agree. We have even more women applying for the upcoming program than we even had last year. I worry that it's a momentary, momentary change, but I think organizations like Emerge can build on that interest and make it significant. Thank you all very much for joining me today. 
Thank you. Ryan Olson is the executive director of Emerge Massachusetts. Victoria Budson is the founder and executive director of the Women and Public Policy Program at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And Anissa Esayabi George is Boston City Councilor at Large. Coming up, celebrities. We can't get enough of them. With the internet, there's less of a filter than there used to be. It's not a publicist who's giving the message of Rock Hudson. It's, you know, Kanye tweeting a million things about what he's supposed to be and what he should be doing. And you're getting a middleman removed, and it feels like they're closer, and they sometimes respond to fans or Instagram selfies of them in the middle of getting their hair done when they're not quite ready. And people comment, and they comment back, and suddenly there's this interaction between fans and celebrities that make it feel like they're closer to us. Julie Clam, author of The Stars in Our Eyes, and UTR pop culture contributor Rachel Rubin, join me to discuss Americans' all-encompassing fascination with celebrities. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. We talk about celebrities and their lives as if we know them. Beyonce's twins, Justin Bieber's public meltdowns, and new couples like Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez. And celebrity now applies to people who've maximized their 15 minutes of fame, like the camera-hogging Kardashians. They took famous for being famous to another level, but these days it doesn't matter to their millions of fans. The truth is, most Americans are avid consumers of celebrity news, and the obsession only seems to have gotten stronger. Hey, Kanye, you squashed that beef with Jay-Z now, bro? You see Kim come out, and she's walking with Thane. She, like, buckles him up in the car, and then she goes back in, and then she brings out uh, North and, like, her little girlfriend. Kenya, would you mind signing in the car? Watch out, guys. Kylie Jenner is pregnant. Andrew, what do you think about Emma yeah, calling you a poet? Oh, Andrew, what kind of shampoo do you use? Carol! Carol! Yeah. No time, no figure! He's pushing! There's a child here! That's why, you idiot! Hey, 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 so trust us! It's not what everything you're doing right now is out of control. Ridiculous! Why are Americans so obsessed with celebrities, and what does it mean? Joining me to dissect it all, Julie Clam, whose latest book is The Stars in Our Eyes, The Famous, The Infamous, and Why We Care Way Too Much About Them. Clam has authored four other books, including the New York Times bestseller, You Had Me at Woof. Julie joins us from the studios of the Radio Foundation in Manhattan. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. Also with me in studio, Rachel Rubin, one of Under the Radar's pop culture contributors. Rachel Rubin is a professor of American studies at UMass Boston with an expertise in popular culture and American popular music. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Callie. All right. I'm glad to, for both of you are here. This is a subject I pondered about for a long time. Uh, let me start this way, Julie. Uh, it feels as though Andy Warhol, with his 15 minutes of fame for everybody, is wrong, and people are getting more and more hours and hours <laughs> of attention. Is that what drew you to the exploration of celebrity obsession? 
It, what drew me to it was I was um, trying to figure out what my next topic would be. And every time I sat down to write, I found myself being distracted by uh, the fact that Charlie Sheen was trending on Twitter. And I not that I care about him, but suddenly I had to go find out why. And, and then I'd go down this rabbit hole of looking from Charlie Sheen to his ex-wife, Denise Richards, to uh, her uh, ex-boyfriend, to all of these different people. And before you knew it, hours would go by. And it was fascinating to me because I do have a full life. Um, you know, I have a, a, a family and animals and work a lot. And I still couldn't resist this. So I thought there's a, there's got to be a book in this. At least if I'm reading celebrity um, gossip, it'll be work. <laughs> well, as you indicated, you're, you're not looking down your nose at people who are obsessed because you're a bona fide celebrity-obsessed yeah. person yourself. In fact, in your recent op-ed in the New York Times, you, you wrote a piece called To Stay Sane, Read More Celebrity Gossip because— you say you've always used stars as a distraction when the real right. news is so horrendous. We need celebrity news more than ever. We do? <laughs> Explain. Well, you know, I, I think what it is is um, the things that we do in our life to escape. If we go to movies or watch TV shows or, or go to ball games or listen to albums, the people in those that sort of star in these things that we escape from are the celebrities. And we like to see them outside of their the realm that we're used to seeing them and figure out the things that are, you know, just like us, the the Us magazine thing, where, oh, you know, they're in Starbucks, they're they're having uh, the same thing that I drink and wearing the same Uggs I have or whatever the thing is. Um, and I think lately, you know, in the last whatever year, um, well, last since last November, there has been a daily dumpster fire of of news that is horrific. And, you know, there there have to be breaks. And, you know, there are other things you can do. But, um, you know, what, sometimes when you read about a celebrity and you see that they're just doing their life, they're doing the things that the normal things you think for a moment, oh, everything's, everything's okay. Everything's regular. We're not about to be blown up. All right, and let me bring Rachel Rubin, uh, Professor Rachel Rubin in, um, Professor of American Studies at UMass Boston. Rachel, it feels like this is so intense and this is happening in this moment and it hasn't ever been a moment like this. But, but you say throughout various historical periods, there's always been a kind of celebrity obsession. You know, that's, that's actually right. And in fact, I would say that one of the most important things that I try to get students to acknowledge about popular culture and celebrity is that it is not escapism. That mm. celebrity, that, that popular music and movies actually process what's going on around us. I could name pop songs about, you know, the Detroit auto plants shutting down, for instance. Um, you could talk about how African Americans um, really, what an important celebrity to them Joe Lewis, the boxer, was um, because of what it sort of meant politically. Connect that now to, you know, people, to football players who are kneeling. 
So I actually think that, yes, there has always been this important celebrity culture. What we are seeing now, I think, is sort of turning those people more and more into commodities, mm. which has always been there. It has always been there. And again, it's not the same for every group of people, right? There were all those years in wonderful early Harlem nightclubs when black jazz musicians were allowed to be performers but were not allowed to be in the audience. So there has always been this sort of um, commodification element. Um, but for me right now, what sort of expresses what it gets to and that it's gotten to a new level is this like everybody sort of taking up the word celeb, mm. right? Everybody mm. doing it at once sort of marks that it's something different and it's just it's a thing in and of itself. You're not a celebrity for something, right? You're a celeb. And everybody knows how to define celeb, by the way. If you hear it anywhere, people just know what they that know is. They know what it is. So you're saying that uh, there is a platform that people who have celebrity can use, and, and then there's also our taking in other messages through their celebrity, whether or not we are aware of that or not. Absolutely. So it's working on several levels. Now, Julie Clam, uh, and your book is The Stars in Our Eyes, you say we're going to find out why in your book we're distracted. But actually, I found in reading your book that you came up against the same conundrum that many people have when they've tried to tackle this. We really can't figure out why. We're obsessed. We can say how maybe we got to this point. And here's a, a few uh, possibilities. The Internet. We, it's easier for us to get a lot of information. The increase in magazines like People magazine, but there's way beyond People now. And then, of course, it, we are so comfortable with celebrity and reality celebrity, which we can talk about, that our president came from that world. So would you agree that that's how it got there, but it doesn't necessarily say why it is? <laughs> well, some of the why is... Um in the science parts. And I talked about a scientific study at Duke University where a neurobiologist was working with rhesus monkeys and he gave them a salty snack to eat and they had a choice of either having their favorite drink, cherry juicy juice, or looking at pictures of the higher status or celeb monkeys. And they all chose looking at the pictures of the celebrity monkeys and had to be bribed to look at pictures of the B-list monkeys. So there does seem to be something in us that's hardwired to look at these special people, these people that have some sort of, you know, fame or status or whatever. I think it is it because that we think that we can be like them or we just know that they're or they seem like they're different people, even though they're the same people, they just happen to have gotten a, a different kind of amount of attention. I think there's a there's a part of some of us that feel like they're a better version of us, you know, at least subconsciously they're, you know, they have, uh, you know, fitness trainers and, 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 and stylists and hair and makeup people with them all the time. And they look, you know, you catch them on the street and they look glamorous and, and fabulous and there's some sort of, you know, sparkly quality that um, mm. we like to look at. 
That's my guest, Julie Clam. Her book is The Stars in Our Eyes. Rachel Rubin, what about that? What about these rhesus monkeys that like the pictures? <laughs> no matter, I mean, the hardwiring. The hardwiring. Yes. You know, yeah. I can't, and I can't exactly talk about the monkeys, <laughs> but it is funny because, I mean, one thing that I think we do need to keep reminding ourselves of is that when we see celebrities on the street and so forth and having the hairstylists and all this that, that, that Julie just mentioned is a good reminder that what we are seeing is always always performance. Mm. It's always performance. And there's a lot of like wonderful sly of acknowledgement of that in hip hop culture. That just the number of songs alone that mention professional wrestling in, you know, a genre where battling people take it seriously and think, you know, Nas and Jay-Z hate each other or whatever when, you know, it's all performativity. And I think sort of historically what's changing, and that's always been there, by the way. Like, I don't remember any, I, I just remember that once reading that Elvis Presley, when he was making movies, it was in his contract that he had to be seen somewhere out with the woman who was his love interest in the movie. So people would think the two actors were actually dating. And that still continues today. That still continues today. I just saw Jake Gyllenhaal interviewed the other day, and he said, I would like to meet half of the people they say I'm supposed to be dating. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know? But it's, well, you know, but, I... but but anyway, so so the, sort of the point I'm making is, like, there there is, I guess, you know, you could trace it back to, since since we've mentioned the Kardashians, the idea of reality TV, right? It's not reality TV. That's the name of it. Right. It's performance as much as any other kind of TV. But now we're being told um, sort of more broadly, and the Internet folds in here too, that we're getting glimpses of people's actual lives. When in, in fact, what I guess you would have to just say is that sort of the performance and commodification is just sort of permeating more aspects of our lives. You agree, Julie? I do. I also think that um, with the internet, people there is there's less of a filter uh, than there used to be. It's not a publicist who's who's giving the message of Rock Hudson. It's um, you know Kanye tweeting a million things about his what he's supposed to be and what he should be doing, and you're 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 getting a uh, a middleman removed, and it feels like they're closer, and they sometimes respond to fans or Instagram selfies of them, you know, getting in the middle of getting their hair done when they're not quite ready, and and um and people comment and they comment back, and suddenly there's this interaction between fans and celebrities that make it feel like they're closer to us. And, um, you know, definitely with the reality, uh, it's not re it's not at all. No, in uh, fact, Conway gave a wonderful wink to all of this in this that song of his where he just goes, I love Kanye. You love Kanye. Yeah. You love Kanye. Right, yeah, right, everybody right. loves Kanye. Well, I think he really yeah. believes that, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and my guests are Arthur Julie Clam and Professor Rachel Rubin, and we're using Julie's book, The Stars in Our Eyes, The Famous, The Infamous, and Why We Care Way Too Much About Them to Dissect the American Obsession with Celebrities. Now, here's the singular truism that stuck out for me in your book, Julie. Um, and I'd love you to read this part. It's on uh, page 21 about mm -hmm. uh, when we, we talk about uh, celebrities. It's okay. in the chapter when we talk, what we talk about when we talk about celebrities. All right. Um, it's uh, beginning with if you're yes. a writer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, if you're a writer, people 
always ask you what you're working on. Most of the time, I tell them, a dog book, a friendship column, and they nod and move on. Doing research for this book, however, I noticed something remarkable. Just about every person I mentioned it to told me a story of celebrity encounter. What I found and continue to find is that people vividly recall a sometimes brief interaction that might have taken place 40 years ago. They may not remember a second of their time in fourth grade, but they remember seeing Paul Newman putting gas in his Datsun that summer. The distinction is important to me, poignant and human. Um, to me, that's better than a rhesus monkey. That just says it right there. If you can recall, <laughs> right. and I sort of did a little test with people, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. could recall. Um, mm -hmm. Rachel, I'd love you to respond to that. <laughs> what, do, what do you think about that, that we, we can recall every celebrity interaction? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, and again, I, I really have to say that using uh, this sort of broad we makes me a little bit anxious. And I do think that celebrity interactions are also, I mean, you know, yes, lots of people have them. You know, people go to performances, they might run into somebody after, but there's definitely a class element here and there's mm. definitely a race element here and there's definitely an age element here and a regional element and all of that stuff, right? If you live in, I don't know, like Iowa, grow up there, you're less likely to meet a celebrity than if you live in New York and so forth. Um, so, um, yeah. So, you know, again, leaving that aside, we are we are being told what's important. We are being told what matters. And as you know, as you have both pointed out, um, the Internet now makes that even so much more common that mm -hmm. if you run into a celebrity, you know, you're supposed to be happy about it. Final thoughts, Julie? Uh, I well, I was I was um, I was going to say that I I have never asked anybody if they uh, who who hasn't had some celebrity interaction and you know I mean all over the country whether they were traveling or whether it wasn't the level of celebrity that you're talking about um, you know um, when I was a kid I grew up in Westchester in. Um, a small town, and there was a woman in our town who was in the secret deodorant commercial. And as far as I was concerned, she was a celebrity, and I was very excited to right. see her. <laughs> so I think um, I think it's you know, or somebody who plays in a local band or whatever. It's a there's a wide range, um, but but it really sticks with us. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Julie. Thank you, Rachel Rubin. Thank you. Julie Clam is the author of The Stars in Our Eyes, The Famous, The Infamous, and Why We Care Way Too Much About Them. She has also written four other books, including the New York Times bestseller, You Had Me, Ed Wolf. The book is available now in bookstores and online. And Rachel Rubin is one of Under the Radar's pop culture contributors and a professor of American studies at UMass Boston with an expertise in popular culture and American popular music. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineers are Bill Piacitelli and Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.